Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 80, the server automation mindset. And I know Jay has been in the server automation mindset for a very long time. And I know he's working on a few uh, in-depth projects right now that really brought this up. And uh, is that an yep. accurate statement there, Jay? Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I just realized that I think I've been doing automation for 10 years-ish at this point. So um I was, I was like, how long has it been? And I, I have to kind of think about where I was in my career when I started something because I just lose track of the years. I'm like, I worked at such and such a place. That was 10 years ago. Oh, my gosh, it's been 10 years. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I've learned a couple of things. Yeah, that's um, and I, I know you've been talking everything about Kubernetes and all that. All the all there's a private chat that me, Jay, and several friends have. So, yeah. uh, in, in some of this public, I mean, some of this goes on on Twitter. So, you this is something we've been thinking about a lot lately. But it seems like a good title here with us talking about Docker images and virtual machines in episode seventy nine. You know, let's talk a little further about how you think about these, how you think about automating all of your build processes, and that's a really important thing to get to, especially because I've seen a forum post of uh, someone trying to figure out how they migrate their VMs because they're having trouble because they have no way to rebuild any mm -hmm. of those VMs. Like they don't, oh, yeah. they, like they got them perfectly set up and they backed them up, but they're not sure how to get them somewhere else to a completely different hypervisor platform because they had some trouble with migration. But if you have a good rebuild process, suddenly that doesn't become relevant anymore. So that's kind of the automation mindset of how you think about how you structure things, how you make them repeatable. Your data is important, but the virtual machines or the Docker images or the Kubernetes, none of that is. It's all about the build process. We're going to be diving into that today. Before we do, a company that's kind of got automation figured out to scale up their system is our friends at Linode. Great place to host many of the things we talk about here on the Home Lab Show. And it's a great place to test your orchestration abilities because you can have it in different regions, have different servers in different places, test your ability to rebuild it, test ability to set up some of these projects that we talk about, as I said. So we want to thank them for being a longtime sponsor of the show and continuing to sponsor the show. So thanks for Linode. If you want to get started with them, we have the offer of the Home Lab Show. It's down in the links below. All right. All right. Where do we start with automation? So I'll give a quick background. Um, I'll, I'll try to make this short. I don't really do a good job of making things short, but I figure that uh, new listeners may not know, you know, what I automate or how I do it. I have videos about it, so I'll keep the details a little shorter, but just a little bit of background first, and then um, the we'll get to the main topic. And the main topic is my recent project for automating uh, Kubernetes deployment, like a complete cluster. Like, let's just say you have X number of servers, you want one to be the controller, you want the others to be nodes. Um, you know, you have to build that, but you know, how do you do that in a non-manual fashion? So quick background is I use Ansible for pretty much everything. I have background in Chef and Puppet. I started with Puppet, transitioned to Chef later, and now I landed on Ansible. I have never used SaltStack, so I'll just get that right out there. If anyone asks, what about SaltStack? My answer is, I don't know. It, it might be great. For all I know, I, I have no knowledge. So um, when I discovered Ansible, it kind of just clicked with me. So Ansible, for people that aren't aware, um, if you're brand new, brand new, then Ansible is a, an agentless method of configuration management. So when you think of Puppet and Chef, they have agents. There's a server and the server reaches out to a server that it maintains. It connects to the agent, gives the agent instructions. The agent carries out those instructions. So the goal 
is to have a server, you know, usually it's a Linux server, become a certain thing after the configuration management solution runs. And you want to try to get it to a point where you can build it from nothing to the thing it's supposed to be without having to dive in and manually do it. So you want a web server, right? You want to have Apache or Nginx or whatever it is installed, um, virtual host set up. You know, that's going to be something you might want to automate. So Ansible allows you to do that, but the agentless nature of it is amazing. So once I discovered that, I just fell in love with it. I set up a Ansible server. You don't technically need an Ansible server. Some people will use their workstation as a server because it uses SSH. So some people will have a dedicated server that they'll log into via SSH. They'll, you know, update their Ansible config and it'll roll it out. Or they could have a just a workstation. They'll pull down the Git repository, do whatever they're going to do, and then issue the commands from their workstation. So there's multiple ways you could do it, but you have a central thing. Whether that's your workstation or server, there's a thing that's reaching out to the different servers via SSH. That's the default. That's how Ansible works. And Ansible uses YAML, which is super easy. Um, I'll, I'll say that I don't know YAML itself very well, but YAML and Ansible, which is the same thing technically, because YAML is YAML, um, I, I think I just have a lot of it memorized. And it's just so easy to um, you know, install a package or do whatever you want to do. So a chef or puppet, it might be like a whole block of Ruby code to install a package. Whereas with Ansible, it's like um, the lowest common denominator is like dash name if you want to give it a... Um, uh, you know, a name for the task, or you could just say, you know, just go right into the task, package, colon, um, package name, done. You know, Th it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yes, I'm making it sound a bit more easier than it actually is, but it's pretty easy. It is the easiest one. So I've been using that for a while, fell in love with it, but there was one thing that didn't work out well, and this is one of the um, automation mindsets, but the bigger one's coming, where... I decided I wanted to automate everything. And I mean everything, workstations, so laptops, <laughs> desktops, in addition to servers. And I want it to be smart enough to know what it's being run on so I don't have to maintain the workstation Ansible, the server Ansible as separate entities. I want one Ansible and I want it to maintain all the things. So that was a goal. And then later on I solved that goal and it does absolutely that. If it's a workstation, it can build everything from the command line up to GNOME, keyboard shortcuts, wallpaper and all, with me doing nothing but running one command. So I got that done. But there's one problem. And this is the mindset here. Um, my computers aren't always on. My desktop will suspend. My laptop will suspend. So obviously, when it suspends, it's not available. So if the Ansible server goes to connect to it, it can't. It, it's asleep. The laptop could be in my bag. It, it can't be contacted, especially if I take the notebook somewhere else, it's off the network. So I'd get errors from the Ansible server, can't contact, can't contact. When, yeah, I know, because the laptop's in my, in my bag and that got a little annoying. So at one point I discovered Ansible Pull and I swear I'll never use anything else. Like at first I thought Ansible Pull was ridiculous because it kind of goes against the nature of Ansible. It's, it's almost like creating an agent for a system that doesn't need one. So it kind of felt like, the wrong way to do it. But when I actually looked into Ansible Pull, I started using it. And what Ansible Pull allows you to do is you give it a URL for a repository, a Git repository, and it'll run at localhost. And I found a way to differentiate one host from another with the same Git repository. I could actually have different values per host. There's absolutely a way to do that. 
And then, you know, one thing led to another, and we have this crazy uh, automation system that I have today. But one thing isn't being automated currently, and that's the rollout of uh, Kubernetes cluster. And that's where we get into the first thing. Need to stay Kubernetes. Kubernetes is the big one. Well, <laughs> it is, but there's one thing that I want to touch on first, and that's the question, should I automate the thing? Now, <laughs> most people are probably going to say, well, yeah, I mean, duh, automate everything. But one thing when we get into the automation mindset that you always have to pay attention to is, is this task something you're likely to do again? Let's just say, for example, there's a 95% chance you are you are never going to do this thing again. At work, it could be you're doing a task that is a one-off um, and you're, you're just never going to do that again, or something of your own in your home lab that you you plan on never doing again. Then you could make an argument that there's a negative return on that. Why automate the thing if you're never going to do it again anyway? Now, one rebuttal to that is regardless of whether or not you are going to do it again, um, you're, you're learning, right? So if you automate something, you're learning stuff. You're learning more about Ansible or Chef or whatever the system is. So that's valuable because learning something is a great thing to do. But depending on your use case for automation, that might not be good enough. At work, it might make sense because someone might want to know, how did you do that? Well, look at the playbook right here. That's what we call the configuration. Um, we call them playbooks, the, the YAML files in Ansible. But someone might look at that and glean from it something valuable. But the problem still is, are you going to do the thing again? So here we get into what it's like to be a content producer and a home lab owner at the same time. Now, when I set up a Kubernetes cluster, I didn't plan on setting that up again. Now, to be fair, I'm constantly building these because I've done no fewer than three, probably four tutorials about setting up Kubernetes clusters at this point. So I'll often just set up a lab or something and go through commands and things. So regardless, I'm going to keep doing it, but I don't want to automate that because I want to teach people how to build these clusters. So I need to do that manually. But meanwhile, my Kubernetes cluster, and it's funny, I was at, um, I was at scale and someone asked me, like, how's that Kubernetes cluster going that you built in that video? And I'm like, well, <laughs> as luck would have it, that one is completely broken and has been broken for months because unfortunately I just, it's an easy fix, but I, I have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of content to create. So sometimes I'll work on building new clusters for you guys, but when it comes to fixing my own, if it breaks, probably not something that um, I'm able to do. The main problem here though is I thought I was only going to set up that cluster once. As it turns out, when I upgraded to Ubuntu 2204, something broke. Now I have to rebuild it. I don't have time to rebuild it. So I plan to automate this because I I felt like my original opinion that I'll only do this once wasn't really valid because here I am about to do it again. So another reason to automate is if your servers fall over. I mean, yeah, we hope to never have to rebuild them, but if that day comes, we'll be thankful that we have an automation. Now for me, Kubernetes cluster is dead. It doesn't work. So um, if I had that automated, then I would have a Kubernetes cluster right now. So I figured I'm gonna have to put some hours into this. And if anyone's wondering why I haven't had a video out this week, well, I'm working on my Kubernetes cluster right now, but I'm gonna try to have something out tomorrow. So that's the first thing anyway, to determine if you should automate it, if it's a negative return, but also keep in mind that yeah, you might have to rebuild it someday. So there might still be value. 
and I'll still bring up the fact that, you know, just because you're 95% sure you won't do it again, you may find yourself doing it again anyways. So, you know, like the Kubernetes cluster. So sometimes you don't always have that information ahead of time. It's a good learning experience doing the automation. And to go roll back a little bit to something that Jay had said about Ansible, how it just clicked. One of the things that and I was just at Ohio Linux Fest and there was a big discussion about this is with Ansible, you in, in Python as well, both of these were talked about a lot. You come for the product, you stay for the community. One nice thing is Ansible's got a great community around it, a lot of documentation around it, a lot of projects around it, lots of things you can find to it's not build yourself, but start with someone else's framework that they put together in it. So being such a hugely popular project that really lends itself to ease of use, there's just plenty of people using it. And this is the challenge of some of the automation tools such as Chef Puppet and SaltStack is the higher learning curves mean less community adoption and maybe less available uh, tooling or existing frameworks that, you know, templates that you can pull from to build things. So you end up building a lot of things from scratch. Uh, Ansible is, I've never gone further than Ansible. That's just the, any of the stuff I do, and I don't do a lot with Ansible, but any of the stuff I've done is, it, it just is pretty easy. Like Jay says, defining some fleets, put a few things in there, define it, and away you go. But it's probably, if you're not sure where to start, don't start with the more complicated stuff unless right. you at least understand Ansible. And if for some reason Ansible doesn't fit the needs, and by the way, that you would have to have some pretty hefty needs for Ansible not to fit them because based on level automation, um, then move up to something else. But Ansible is just a great place to start. So uh, grab one of the books. And actually, our fellow YouTube friend, Jeff Gearling, I believe, has a few books on uh, Ansible as well. I actually just bought his book. Um, I don't know if it's the most, I think it's the most current because I think it's the one that's in development. So my understanding is I'll keep getting updates as he um, wraps up parts of it. So it was really cool to read this book so far because I was actually Googling how to do something as I was building the cluster through Ansible and he came up in the, in the search results and his book came up. I'm like, I, I bet he probably has the answer to this issue that I'm dealing with in that um, book. Now, um, Another one last thing about should you automate that I think is important to bring up. Now, let's just say this is a task that cannot happen again and you automate it. Did you lose time? Well, one thing that I've learned is in the future, you could have another thing that you're automating. And it's not quite the same thing as the, the thing you automated that you'll never need to do again. But there might be enough overlap in the code to where you can pretty much just do it similarly and take that and adjust it to become something else. And I find myself doing that a lot where I'll have, let's say a task that installs 10 packages. Should I just write that again? No, I'm going to find a playbook where I installed a bunch of packages. I'm going to copy that thing. I'm going to paste it in the current task and change everything to make sure the naming matches rather than type it by hand, because eventually you end up with a library of things. Like you get to a point where you've done pretty much everything that you can do in an automation platform. For example, you have a task or a play, if it's Ansible, that it, that copies a file. You have another one that creates a file from a template. You have another play that creates a folder, one that installs packages, another that restarts services. And you keep going, and eventually all of the high-level tasks that you might do on a Linux server, you've done something with Ansible with a play that that becomes a, your your own playbooks become a library for future playbooks. So that's also an important thing too. Now, going back to your point about installing or using Ansible and not starting with something complicated, I'm going to make a claim that's going to uh, make me hypocrite, one, 
and it's going to make a bunch of people happy. And three, it's also going to make some people very annoyed with me. But the mindset that we run into often in home lab is you might, let's just say you had 10 home labbers together and you say, hey, I've done a thing with this uh, particular piece of software. And someone else is like, you should never use that. You should only use this. Like, for example, I mentioned one time I had uh, MySQL data or MariaDB, but MySQL database uh, for something that really wasn't all that important. You should only use Postgres. What are you doing? Like, oh my gosh, here we go. Um, but we run into that, right? And it, people are passionate about the things that they like. And I don't like to be a person that tells people only use one thing. But if you don't have a configuration management utility, unfortunately, I'm going to leave salt out of this. You shouldn't use anything else but Ansible. And I hate that I'm saying that because it's the thing that I hate when people say to me. But when you compare Chef, Puppet, and Ansible, um, and again, I don't know anything about salt stacks. So I'm leaving that out of this. Um, there's just nothing else that even comes close because Ansible is lightweight by default. The syntax is way simpler. It's more flexible. And there's other things that I ran into with other solutions, like, um, for example, Puppet. And this was probably, I don't know, back in, I want to say back when Debbie and Jesse came out, if I'm not mistaken. So that was quite a while ago. Um, the company was using Puppet that I was working for. And we upgraded to Debbie and Jesse. Everything was fine. Like, like all the servers were good. Everything passed all the tests were fine. Um, but now it's it's time to start, um, you know, updating to the newest puppet so I could have support natively for Debbie and Jesse, but it doesn't work. And this is six months after Debbie and Jesse hit stable and it's puppet. It's one of the biggest configuration management utilities out there that doesn't support Debbie and Jesse on release day, despite the fact that Debbie and Jesse was frozen for six months. That left a bad taste in my mouth. But that being said, um, you know, Ansible supported that a lot sooner as I understand it. There's really not much to support. It's just apt and it's simpler. But going further, you have to deal with all these certificates, the agent, um, watching the CPU spike every time it runs. I just really can't make any case whatsoever for Puppet or Chef. And, and no offense to the people that work in those projects, but Ansible just hits this nail so hard on the head, it just knocks it through the board. It, it's just, um, in my opinion, a really great solution. So does that sound biased? It absolutely does. As an educator, it's hard for me to say that because I need to teach people all the things. So that does not mean I'll never do puppet content or chef content. I probably will someday, but um, I'll probably leave out my opinion in those videos about never use it. Here's how you use it. That wouldn't be good. But Ansible is, is just... Um, in my opinion, it just checks all the boxes, and it's really hard to ignore that. Well, and the fact that it's agentless makes this low barrier of entry uh, right at the top of the list. Going, oh, cool! I can just pipe all this over SSH. Um, it integrates well with Python, and those are like just a winning combination. I'll actually answer a question uh, someone had brought up and see if you have a difference of opinion on this, Jay. But I uh, went to a talk recently. Granted consider the source. It was put on those folks at Red Hat and they were talking about the future of Ansible. And one of the things they really seem to be doing is bringing it to the masses even more. They talked about being able to 
have it easier to use by using better tools that will build the playbook. So you don't even really have to write the YAML. You can do it, in, as they kind of said, a plain syntax, and it will build it on the back end. Basically, hmm. it looked like they were building more tooling to make it more accessible for people to use. I think this is the right direction to go. I've seen someone comment that they think Red Hat's moving away from the core features of it. But I think some of those automation features, it starts with the techie people. And, you know, obviously there's someone out there uh, coding things in machine. And this is going, uh, you know, for people who are deeply technical, we want to bring it to the less technical people having access to these things. And that's how you get there is by having tooling. So us technical people figuring out where that level is. And then there's someone less technical or less interested in getting into the technical details and making this more accessible for them. That's the impression I got from talking to Red Hat as to where they're taking things. Did you kind of get the same, Jay? Yeah, I also feel like um, people might have this opinion because when something's really great, they're afraid of it um, becoming not great or, or becoming something else entirely. I mean, you do you remember BitTorrent Sync way back? Yeah. And remember what happened? Like everyone loved it. It was great. And then all of a sudden, um, evil corporate company made it something else. Um, <laughs> and people are always afraid of that. But then again, it, it sometimes happens. And I'm not saying Red Hat's an evil company, but... I haven't seen anything that causes me alarm because the way I look at it, building tooling on top of something is not uncommon. It happens all the time. And you could even argue that AWX, the open source version of Ansible Tower, which is a web-based application you could run to manage your tasks, you, you could argue that might even take away from some of the core functionality because it automates the automation tool in, in some ways. So that's not a big deal to me because I feel like if you don't like that, you could just go and write them, write the playbooks yourself and just pretend like that doesn't exist. Right. Unless Red Hat is forcing you to use it, then I have a problem, but I have seen no evidence to support that. And that'll just make it more accessible for other people because think of it this way. You could work at a company where you are the Ansible master and you have like maybe an IT generalist that you work with that isn't like an expert of everything. Maybe they're just starting out. And that might just be a good way to get them you know, updating your playbooks for you without having to have like hour long training sessions right at the very beginning that might just give them an opportunity to log in and do something. So that person will love it and you'll ignore it. Now, if they force you, that's another story. But <laughs> then again, um, even if they did force Ansible to become that method only and they went completely away from it, that's still not a problem because Open source is self-policing, and that's the coolest thing about it. So if the company takes it in a direction that the majority of the hardcore people they don't like, somebody's going to fork it and, and bring it right back to what they think it should be. And then, yeah, it's divergent at that point. But if you look at LibreOffice, I mean, how many of you have OpenOffice installed? I bet a few people in our audience do, but the majority don't. Why? Because OpenOffice went in a direction people didn't like. Then here comes LibreOffice, and it completely takes over. And I think if Red Hat doesn't know that, they're stupid. And they're not stupid. They, they know the industry. They know if they push back too hard, somebody's going to fork it, and then they risk losing all their investment if the thing that forked becomes more popular. So they know that, or at least they should know that. So all things being considered, I really don't feel like there's um, anything to worry about, because regardless of the direction it goes, I think people are going to be okay. Yeah, and Red Hat seemed very aware of the community. They talked about community efforts and things like that. So, you right. know, they've been playing in the Linux world long enough. Even though IBM bought them, IBM doesn't appear to have changed their culture. So I think I'm pretty good um, 
you know, all of, uh, the, with the direction things are going. And I see, um, yeah, there's the overall, I think I, I have uh, positive feelings about. <laughs> yep. Same here. And someone asked about Packer for automating, um, Proxmox VMs containers. So Packer by HashiCorp is, is a tool that we've talked about before that allows you to automate the creation of images. I have mixed opinions because there's two school of thoughts here. Automation mindset time, okay? So you could have, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, an, an image that you create and you could script the creation of the image such that when you create a new VM, whether it's Proxmox or AWS, Google Cloud, Linode, whatever, that can then take that image and make it into a virtual machine. So that way um, you don't have to worry about sitting down for an hour just to build a base image that'll then be used to create the base OS for all of your things, you could have that automated. And, th and again, that's valid. That's totally fine. And there's two ways of doing it. The, the other way is a school of thought that you should never have a custom image. Now, this sounds weird at first because you're like, why, why wouldn't you want that? Well, if you think about it, most cloud providers allow you to have some kind of a script or something that runs when an instance comes up, like AWS calls it user data. So technically, what you have in the user data text box could be commands that do the few things that you need to bootstrap your automation solution that'll then automate the rest of the system. So you can make an argument that the only thing you should have in a base image is just a bootstrap to the automation solution, but you can make the argument to not even have that and put that in the user data or whatever your platform calls the script that runs when it comes up. And all of that is valid. I'm not saying one way is better than the other. It depends on what you think is better. Packer is absolutely valid, and the um, imageless system is valid. Obviously, you're going to have an image, but what the second idea is, is you have just the base distribution image that the cloud provider provides you, and you do nothing to customize it because your automation system does everything. Um, but I feel like it, it's a little harder to get to that until you have a certain uh, level of experience. Um, one benefit of that is you don't have to worry about let's just say malware snuck into the image. I mean, what are the odds? It takes you an hour to build a base image and malware just happened to get into it. And it could happen, but it's a lot less happen, likely to happen the other way. Again, every way is valid, has pros and cons. Now, let's get into the main topic at hand, like the mindset <laughs> of the Kubernetes automation, because as I'm going through this, um, there's basically some things or thought processes that come up but I feel like a lot of these are natural course of how these things play out that I thought would be fun because, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to work in a podcast, but I know what won't work is me going over the syntax of a playbook and you have to like think of it in your head and or just write really quick on a piece of paper or type really fast. Um, some things are good for videos and some things are good for podcasts. So we're never going to be highly visual on this podcast if anyone out there is going to ask because... The number of people that watch live is far fewer than the number of people that are listening in their car, podcatcher right. app. But what I thought would be fun is just to talk about the mindset that went into the process of building it, because that tells a story and it's less about the syntax and more about the journey. And I thought that might be a yes. lot of fun. So, I like that idea too, telling you about the journey for it. So I kind of told told everyone in the audience already, you know, how this started. Kubernetes cluster broke a long time ago. 
it's funny. I tell you guys, it show you guys how to build clusters and things, but I don't even run one currently because it, you know, hard to maintain and do content. But it, I decided it's time to automate it. So the first thing that I did was I set up three virtual machines in Proxmox, just vanilla Ubuntu 2204 virtual machines from a template. And I went ahead and bootstrapped, you know, basically meaning I in, had the initial Ansible run, run on all of these. Now at this point, I have not created any tooling automation or anything around Kubernetes. So I have several roles and one of them is the base role. And then there's also the server role. So these got the base role and the server role. So pretty generic. The mindset is I would, you know, bootstrap these with Ansible, shut them down and create a snapshot. And the reason I did this is because I haven't created the Kubernetes automation yet. So when I, um, you know, take a snapshot, it's at a time before I even created it. So when Ansible runs again, when I power them on, when I do, when I do have this done, it's just going to pull down the automation and get them going. But if something goes wrong, I can revert them back to the snapshot and then fix it and then spin it back up. I want to get it to a point where from pretty much almost bare metal, just a base configuration, it's automatically going to check in and pull the recent Ansible down or config anyway. So I'll just, you know, have it spin up or boot it up from the snapshot, see what happens if it, you know, fails, shut it off, restore the snapshot, fix the problem, spin it back up. So it's like having infinite retries, essentially, as I'm going through the process of building this. And meanwhile, these particular instances are checking out a branch in the Git repository. So nothing is being committed to production. None of my other servers know what I'm up to. Um, these particular VMs are specifically checking out a branch I call staging, and only they are getting this. Well, there's other staging instances, but um, that's another story. So I have everything segregated, and this doesn't affect production. So I can just keep hacking on this, and I'm absolutely going to have errors. Things are going to fail constantly, and there's head-scratching moments like, how is this failing? The syntax looks, syntax looks perfect. I can't find the error and an hour later I find it and it's just staring me right in the face, which is another thing we deal with constantly. So what I did, and this is funny, but this is the, the truth. I consult my own videos, books, and um, blog posts for how to do things because I'll forget after, after a time. And considering that I did several videos for setting up Kubernetes clusters, I have all the commands right there. So I just grab the commands from one of those blog posts, put them in a text file. I'm like, these are the things that I'm gonna need to automate. At first it starts off pretty easy. These instances, whether they're nodes or controllers, they need the Kubernetes repository. They need the Kubernetes packages installed. So I'm going to start there, and that's super easy, right? So um, we start off really easy. Then we start to get into, as we go through the process, we kind of get a little more, bit more advanced because anyone that knows about Kubernetes knows that there's C groups that are required to have, for you to have set up. There's sysctl variables you have to have set up. So... We want to get that set up, but then we run into a weird chicken and egg problem. And this is where it really starts to get a little annoying because um, some of my hosts are Raspberry Pis. And as far as I know, you can't set the C group options outside of the command line.txt file that it, you, it reads when it boots. So I'm going to have Ansible inject these things into the boot file, but it, it only takes effect when it boots. So wait a minute. I'm going to automate it, but then it's then the Kubernetes bootstrap is going to fail because until it reboots, it doesn't have those C groups. But how do I reboot and then have it continue where it left off? Hmm. 
And that's one of the things where I felt like it would probably be better just to have a Raspberry Pi image that has those C groups in the boot file. Yes, there's ways of tackling this kind of thing, but then I figure it's probably more complicated than it needs to be. I might be okay with that. But then again, I might also automate the reboot as well. Um, now, the other thing, of course, is the sysctl ver ver excuse me, values, which is just putting some values in the sysctl.com file. It's going to be your bridging, for example, enabling that. Um, and that's fine because that, that's what we need. But then that file is also Reddit boot. But you can actually apply those values without rebooting. Anyone that's added sysctl values knows that you put it in the file to make it effect, take effect every boot but you can absolutely inject um, with an echo statement, a value of one into something in proc to turn it on. In which case I'm adding it to the file, but I'm also setting up a handler that's gonna then inject it into um, the current kernel. That was an interesting situation to work through. And then after that, things got a little bit easier. Um, at that point, it's time to bootstrap the cluster. But the issue is, um, how do I tell the node which one's the controller and which ones are nodes? Hmm. It's time to create a, va a variable, Kubernetes node, true or false, Kubernetes controller, true or false. And then you can easily have tasks that uh, trigger if a value is true or if a value is false, because not everything is going to be a controller. That's only going to be one of them. So we're not going to bootstrap a cluster on everything just in case it might so happen to become a a controller that doesn't make sense. So going through that process was a lot of fun. Um, as a little spoiler, at this point, the last thing I have to do is to get the nodes to join, but the bootstrapping of the cluster works beautifully. Um, and there's just so many of these different things that go into the process that you think of. And another thing with Ansible is you have the ability to register a result. And then right after that, you can have a task that only executes if the previous value or the value value of that variable that was created from the output of the previous task has a certain thing or a certain value. So you could absolutely do that. But you might actually prefer something to happen after the run is completely over, in which case you do a notify to a handler. And a handler is the same thing, but it runs after the run. So that's an interesting mindset there. If you want, let's just say, a service to start, you probably want that to happen right after you install the package. But if you don't, or if it's a race condition, maybe you'll hold that service start until the very end in the handler, but that's up to you. There's no right or wrong way to handle that, but you'll determine which is the right way as you go through the process. And this journey is just so much fun. Um, now here's a big challenge. Ansible pull runs everything localhost. So there isn't a central server that's going out to configure these things, that creates a little bit of a challenge. And the only thing I, this is the only thing I think is a downside potentially advanceable pull. It's let it, you can make it inventory based, but you don't want like a bunch of Ansible servers and everything to be an Ansible server. So that doesn't quite work. So how do you have something reach out to the nodes and tell them to join the cluster when everything is happening independently? That's a big challenge. So. I spent a couple of days thinking about this. I'm like, do I want to, I don't know, create an SSH key and then have the controller node as a handler then reach out to a node to have it join itself, which is kind of weird. So that, that was just very complicated. So then it dawned on me, 
well, duh, I know how to solve this problem. I'm going to have the Kubernetes controller set up an Apache web server. And then after it runs, I'm going to have it print the join command, but redirect standard output to replace the default HTML file that Apache comes with. So then the nodes can then do a curl from the server to pull in the join command and then run it on themselves. Well, of course, that's how you solve it. How else would you do that, right? Um, but it took me a while to think of that because I'm overcomplicating it. I'm like, what do I do? Do I just capture the command from the controller and have it SCP that over to the nodes to store it in temp and then set a cron job that has an if statement that if that file is there, it needs to join a cluster? That would absolutely work. But it's also a lot of moving pieces. But then setting up a temporary web server, I mean, that's actually a security risk, to be honest. But then again, the join commands only last for you know a short period of time until they, they're invalidated. So I figure what I'll do is have the um, when the controller comes up and it and Ansible sets up the web server, it's going to disable the Apache service so that it never starts. I don't want a web server on my my, my controller. But then what I could do is have it start it right when the um, controller is bootstrapped to create that you know, initial um, you know, web server. And then it can print the join command redirected into the um, standard HTML file. And then maybe set a task five minutes later to shut down Apache so I don't have that running anymore, only when I actually need it. And at that point, you know, I could have the nodes just you know, curl the server. Do you have a join command for me? Oh, you do. I'm going to just go ahead and run that on myself and join your cluster. That's pretty cool. One of the reasons why I can get away with this is that everything is LAN and nothing is exposed outside. If this is a cloud provider, I might have a little bit of a worry about spinning up a web server for any reason. If it's not a web server, you know, by association, that might not be a good thing. But on LAN, you can get away with a lot more. Similar to that, how I actually bootstrap a brand new node, I run deploy slash bootstrap pipe to sudo bash done. And that's a web server internally. And it's just a bash file. And it just, any any computer on my LAN, if you were to join my LAN and run that command, I own your machine instantly. Right then and there, my user account is there. My SSH key is there. I'm deep. And I'm, I'm installing my GNOME extensions at that point and changing your desktop environment to GNOME and setting up GDM. Uh, don't run that command on my LAN. You will absolutely need to reformat your machine. But for me, it's just that one command. So some people may not realize the value of a web server for a simple thing like I want on my LAN to have this script available that allows me to join nodes to my configuration management solution. Um, it's absolutely a great use case for that. And the, the value of this is if it's not ex accessible from the outside at all, you don't have to worry about people you know, joining your Ansible. Then again, if they did, I own their machine. So there wouldn't be much incentive for a threat actor to say, hey, I want Jay to own my machine. I'm going to hack into his system and run that command and let him own all of my computers. Probably not something a threat actor wants to do. Um, now, of course, there's another mindset where we're using configuration management, but we also probably shouldn't have anything in there that is personally identifiable, or I'm never going to have API keys in a, in a Git repository, especially. This Git repository is private, though. No one has access to it. The one that's on my GitHub is just an old snapshot from like two years ago. Um, my current working copy is, is nowhere anyone has access to. But then again, you should probably still 
encrypt things, even if there's a very small chance it could be used to hack your system, still encrypt it. There's no reason not to. Then we get into Ansible Vault, which allows you to encrypt files, put them in your version control. Ansible itself, you give it the you know password for the encryption, it's able to decrypt. But if someone actually, you know, actually breaks in and steals my Git repository, well, anything that could be sensitive is encrypted. So it would suck because I'd have to change my repository. But then again, it's not that big of a deal because everything's encrypted and it doesn't really um, help anyone to have that information anyway. That being said, I don't even think I have anything in there that would be a problem. But the mindset is, if in doubt, just encrypt it because why not? It's, yeah. it's easy to do and you may as well. I always encrypt everything. Uh, someone pointed out too, and I believe this goes back to the uh, some of the setting up the Kubernetes that you can create uh, pre-join tokens for the yep. for them as well. So that's another way to solve that. There's actually going to be for generally in Linux more than one way to solve some of these yep. problems. Uh, there may be a way that works better for your instance or the thing you're doing. Uh, Jay yep. having things on a LAN means he's not worried about public exposure of things. If you're running this across the open internet, you may want to think about it differently and have to use one of the other solutions because there's a risk that, well, someone could, even if the time frame is narrow for these join tokens, you wouldn't want them to grab them off a public facing web server that could cause problems. Yep. So you could actually, and in, to that individual's point, um, create a certificate, a self-signed certificate and use Ansible to copy that to the um, proper directory on you know the nodes. And then, you know, there's that certificate match. So I thought about doing that too. Uh, I ran into some other complications. So this part isn't done yet, but the Apache style is a, is a method I'm leaning towards. But that's absolutely valid. There's always more than one way to do something. And I constantly find myself simplifying my own things later because you'll learn a way to do it later that was better than the way you did the first time. And then you go back and look at your own code from years ago. And you're like, wow, I could simplify that. I can simplify that. Then you just watch the number of lines drop and the amount of time that Ansible takes also drop as well. So um, yeah, that's absolutely valid. There's there's going to be multiple ways of doing that. Now, if it was an Ansible control host where you have a, a central Ansible server or workstation, it really doesn't matter at that point because you have an inventory file that says, you know, this IP address is the controller. These ones are the nodes. There's really no... Um, there's really nothing to do. You could capture the join command right there in the server and then run that against the nodes, no problem. Now, Ansible, without Ansible pull, in my opinion, it, Ansible pull just works so much better. Um, in every use case, I've switched I've, I've switched companies to Ansible pull, and they thank me for this. Um, so, but this is the one downside. It makes that a little bit more challenging. Everything else is fine, but that was a bit of a challenge. So that's the last thing I'm working out right now. But um, considering that I have the cluster created, and I also went ahead and um, created the framework for a Kubernetes staging environment and a Kubernetes production environment, because I figure I just created three staging VMs for evaluating this and developing this. I may as well leave them around because any other time I want to roll out a container, maybe I want to try a change. I could try it against the staging Kubernetes cluster, see if it breaks. If it works, then it could graduate to the the main branch if not i fix it keep fixing it and once it works just uh, merge it into the main branch and we're done so now i have a i want i call it a poor man ci cd um because there's not not like jenkins in front of it so 
continuous integration, continuous development is the mindset where you um, commit something to a Git repository and there's something on the on the other end that catches that and runs something. Maybe it um, builds your app if you're a developer or spins up a system if you're a home labber or does both if you have like um, no free time outside of that at all. Um, but that's usually how it works. But for me, I didn't want to, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to run Jenkins anyway because I think it's a great piece of software. But I figure, well, I have instances in Proxmox that are specifically looking for the staging, you know, branch. They're my staging instances. So as long as I push to that branch first, then only my staging instances will get that. And I have literally like caught some big problems that I almost committed to the production repository by just having them go against staging. And that saved me a lot of work. And it's such an easy solution to come up with because you just simply have a um, variable called branch. Your production instances get the main branch, and you know your staging instances get the staging branch. You set that one thing, and that controls how uh, bleeding edge your uh, nodes are. Like this laptop in front of me right now, um, that's the only workstation that gets the staging branch as its main branch because this one's bleeding edge. So yeah, I, this one breaks every now and then because of that. But I think it's pretty cool just to have a, a bleeding edge computer to have another one in front of me anyway. Um, so it doesn't really matter. This one goes down. I think it's a, a the least you could do is have something like that set up to catch these kinds of problems. And for some people, that could be using like Terraform and VirtualBox, which is also valid. You could have a, a Terraform script that just spins up a, a couple of VirtualBox VMs and then runs Ansible against them. And, and that's the way a lot of people do it and totally valid. Um, absolutely do it that way because Terraform definitely can bootstrap right into Ansible. And as an aside, you know, someone brought up Packer earlier, so you could have the entire chain. Packer creates the image, and then you have Terraform that takes that image, creates servers or containers with it, and then um, basically has um, another solution like Ansible come in and, and maintain it for you. So that's the beauty of this. You could literally have one tool chain into another one and have different tools for each stage of the process, depending on how far you want to go into it. But when you are big into automation, I feel like automating things becomes more fun than the work it saves you. Like we really appreciate the hours of work it saves us, but I feel like in the back of our minds, we appreciate more the fun of the project because we're probably spending more time on it than we're saving, but it's just so much fun. It's just like, do you need to max out all your characters to beat the game? No, but it's so much more exciting when you yeah. crush the final you level up one hit. <laughs> you level them up all the way. Yeah, and, and I'll ask you the question, so, Jay. How do you yeah. feel about Cloud and Nick? Because that was one of them that you tackled that's related to this, you know, being able to um, inject things right into the VM. Was that worth learning? <laughs> it was. Um, <laughs> I feel like the problem is that the documentation is good, but it's missing something because when you're you're starting to learn it, it's very confusing. So the reason why is because cloud in it is made for the cloud providers specifically, like these deep engineers that are super into the Linux system that really don't need any handholding at all. Um, so that way they can have a image like maybe Linode. I think Linode might use it too, but I think most of the cloud providers do. And it allows you to um, have customizations in a, a config file. And when it boots up, it's going to do things like reset your SSH keys, and so on. Um, but the, the issue comes when you try to use it in the home lab. It's very simple when you 
boil it down to the lowest common denominator, but trying to find documentation for that's hard. So for example, I heavily use CloudInit on Raspberry Pi on Ubuntu, heavily. I have this, um, this template for CloudInit where I basically have it uh, not create the Ubuntu user, but create a user for myself instead. And there was actually a bug in Ubuntu where if you so much as try to create your own user account and not Ubuntu, it breaks the entire install and you will never log into that thing at all, period. Like you cannot access that. So found that out the hard way and it's nothing wrong with cloud in it. And maybe Ubuntu doesn't have this problem because I think it was with 2004 that I ran into this. And I just found another way to later on, further down in the cloud in it file, create my user account and it works just fine. But what I like about this is you could have a Raspberry Pi image and then you have a cloud init file and the Raspberry Pi image is very generic. So you just, you know, flash that onto your SD card. And before you pop that into your Raspberry Pi, you grab your, you know, cloud init file and put that in the appropriate place. So for example, you could tell it what host name you want the server to be. And sure, you could go into the image and hack that yourself. I just find it's a lot easier just to have that in a template and put it on the file or on the Raspberry Pi. Next thing you know, um, what happens, and this is really cool, the CloudInit file actually calls Ansible, get, you know, does an Ansible pull to the repository. So I drop that file on the Raspberry Pi. At first, it starts off as a you know, generic Ubuntu image that's no different than anyone else's. But that, that config file causes it to set its host name and then grab Ansible, run it against itself. Next thing you know, I have an alert on my phone provision finished for this Raspberry Pi that I just set up. And all I did was just drop that file in there. So CloudInit is awesome. I think one of the confusing parts is that when you want to create a user account, I don't think the documentation does this very well. What it really wants is a web server. The web server, if I'm not mistaken, it wants a JSON file where you can set the username that you want your user to be. Um, it's not explained very well. Um, I, I go a different direction, but I think the idea is you have the, a web server that just serves a JSON uh, file with these values in it, and then you just tell the cloud init file to, where to pull that from, and that'll pull in all the values. Proxmox gets around this by creating a cloud init drive that has those values. So when you set them in the um, interface, it's creating a cloud, or it or you creates a cloud init drive that you attach to the instance and what Proxmox is doing is putting those values there for CloudInit itself to grab and then pull in and run, which saves you from having to spin up a web server for those values. Proxmox has that figured out. But yeah, um, I did a video on CloudInit. I'm trying to remember how advanced it, it went. I should probably look into that and see how up to date that is because it's a pretty awesome technology. Yeah, the it all it came up the other day when I was in the forums for XCPNG because it also has that extension, um, and it's been. They said that it, someone the maintainers of the that section XCPNG had made a comment about some of the challenges of keeping up with some of the changes because of the lack of really good documentation. Um, but you can actually create those as templates, uh, and maybe sometime I'll do a video on that. Um, yep. That way, when you build something new, you say, hey, attach this cloud init to it, and it can set certain things um, as an option. So, yeah, pretty neat. I think cloud init is a good fit for um, basically anyone that wants to create a template for their VMs or whatever, or Raspberry Pis in my case, and they want to have a certain number of things set like from the get-go, 
And this could be, just be as simple as running your automation solution. The only reason why I delete the Ubuntu user is because by default in Raspberry Pi, as well as Ubuntu Cloud Images, the Ubuntu user is UID 1000. But on all my systems, I'm UID 1000. So we can't have two. So one of them's got to go and it's not going to be me. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, but then again, Ubuntu's images are heavily wanting to have that Ubuntu user by default, unless you know the secret incantation. Um, I should probably just throw that, if I can remember, throw up, throw that cloud in it file that I have somewhere within reach for people to get. It's not that complicated. There's only a couple of changes that I make, probably like four or five, and the rest is pretty vanilla. I think those four or five changes that I make are probably not the easiest to find because, again, CloudInit is mainly marketed towards the engineers that work behind the scenes at famous cloud providers. Not that they're saying that you can't use it via the home lab. That hasn't stopped us before. I mean, come on. People are running like ESXi and Proxmox and XCPNG and all this enterprise stuff in their basement. I mean, how awesome is that? So obviously, it's within our wheelhouse. So I think... Yeah. There probably does need to be more content on cloud in it. Yeah, we'll have to work on that. Yeah. All right. So we, we cover the whole documentation or automation mindset. Documentation mindset's yeah. another thing, but do that too. Do that to help you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's also the argument, you know, your configuration management is your, is documentation, your documentation, which I don't agree with because there's some things you can't capture in automation. But, but um, leaving good comments in, in your scripting, that's definitely, please do that. So. Oh, for sure. Yep. And, and even in Ansible, just do the dash name colon and then have something descriptive. Like I have a system where it's like, um, you know, role, task, purpose, and the individual task. It's like bracketed out in, right in the output. So, you know, like basically what it exactly is trying to do. But if not that, then yeah, at least have a comment. Yeah. Yeah, I I do that. Even when I did the video just the other day, I made sure to put it's just a really simple few lines in a bash script, but I still put what those lines do in a very descriptive way. Uh, it doesn't just help the audience when I'm teaching people. It helps Tom when he revisits that a year later going, why did I put that there? <laughs> yep. And as someone mentions, um, you know, they like cloud in it, but if you have one error, it does nothing. And that's true. Um, yeah, I think at that point, one thing you can consider doing is if you could put the cloud init file in a an object storage or NFS somewhere where something can grab it after networking is set up. So you know networking runs, cloud init's going to run. If you can get in between that and pull that in, you could take a snapshot of the VM right before cloud init attempts to run, and if it doesn't work, roll back the snapshot, replace the cloud init file wherever it's grabbing it from, and keep repeating until it does it. And then you could just you know, practice it and then put it in production as soon as you know that it works. And generally speaking, that's just a good way to do it anyway. You want to try to get to a point where uh, obviously you don't want to rebuild your VM from scratch every time you want to make an attempt with cloud in it because the amount of time that's going to take is insane. But if you could snapshot it right before cloud in it runs and then replace that file right there before it runs, then you have pretty much infinite retries. And the reason why I bring this up, and this is another automation mindset I'll leave you guys with, and this is a Windows tip, which is unusual coming from me, right? But I understand uh, some of you guys out there run Windows, and I used to maintain Windows servers for a very long time. Um, it's, it's funny, Microsoft made a, a three-time limit for sysprep. So sysprep oh, is yeah. how you could generalize your Windows install. It takes the drivers out. Um, hardware IDs, software IDs, just just makes it you know generic 
your tweaks and your software is still there, but you want to be able to have a Windows image that you can install in multiple things. You sysprep that, but you only get three tries. So if you have an image, Windows image, you want to re you want to change that image so you restore it, and then you change you know something in sysprep or something in the image, and then you sysprep it again. You can only do that one more time. But if you have a VirtualBox VM that has your base Windows image and you take a snapshot before you sysprep, then you could sysprep until the end of days, thousands of times, and yeah. it'll never run out <laughs> because every time you sysprep, you roll it right back before that, make a change, sysprep again, and you keep, keep doing that. That mindset works on Linux too, obviously, because we have config files. But anyway, I can go on like for a whole nother hour. So unless you <laughs> stop, yeah. me, I think we're going to probably go. Yeah, we're going to wrap it up here. We'll save yep. some for the next episode. Yep. <laughs> Um, but we love hearing from you. So if you hit feedback 2022 at the show, that is a way to email us directly. Uh, we got forgot to mention at the beginning of the show, maybe maybe next week at the beginning of the show, we'll mention that. We'll make a note to ourselves on there. Um, you can yep. fill out the form. We have a contact form. These feed ideas to us. We are also available on the socials. You can find both me and Jay on, uh, well, currently Twitter and its instance. We also will have Mastodon instances. So there's different ways you can get a hold of us depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks for load for sponsoring and uh, love hearing back from you. So take care, everyone. See you next week. See ya.